We're picking up in the story of Joshua, where we have entered into this series looking at the journey of Joshua and the people of God, where God has called them to be bold and courageous to enter into God's promises. Well, last week or two weeks ago, we began to see God's commission to Joshua and this calling to be bold and courageous to enter into God's promises. And then last week, we examined the story of Rahab, who was the first character in Scripture in the story of Joshua, this foreign woman, this prostitute in a heathen land, uh, who was the one who is bold and courageous to enter into the promises of God. And now we come to this section. And what happened between the time that Rahab tied the scarlet cord in her window and the walls of Jericho fell down. That's where we find ourselves, and to this period, Scripture devotes three chapters to this interim period between Rahab and them falling falling down, and the walls falling down. And this three chapters, which is a lot of real estate, that is a lot of content that Scripture gives so that we would understand this message that is provided here, and a lot of it's repetitive. Today we're going to be looking at um, chapters 3 and 4, and the next week we'll pick up as part of chapter 5. And so this is what happens right after the spies return from being with Rahab. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from the place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you should go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. And so they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that, you may, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from 
above stood up and rose up in a, very, in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarephath. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite of Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from people from each tribe of man and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, and from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. And take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. And when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Skipping down to verse 19. So the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. They encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his word. Father, you have given us your word that we would remember and rehearse your acts of deliverance, and that in remembering and hearing, we would fix our eyes on you, and in fixing our eyes on you, that we would step forward in faith into the decisions and life changes that lie before us. And we pray all this in your Son's name, asking for your Spirit to guide us. Amen. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're like, okay, I'm not sure if I'm going to do this, I'm not sure if I'm going to do this, okay, 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 I'm going to do this. I had one of those when I was standing on a, a platform getting ready to do a rope swing, and the platform was, I don't know, 10 to 15 feet off the water, and the way that this worked is that you ran and you threw yourself off the platform, and while you threw yourself off, you grabbed the rope that was out there, and you swing out, and then you're supposed to let go so you don't swing back and splat the platform on, on the way back, right? And the moments before throwing myself off the edge, there is this, I had this mixture of, of fear and excitement, this mixture of exhilaration, and a little bit of being disturbed about the unknown, about what's about to happen and what lies below me. And so I'm standing there being like, okay, okay, am I going to do this? Am I going to do this? Okay, yeah, 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 yes, I'm going to do this. And you just go for it. And this fear and exhilaration and excitement all kind of combined at this one particular moment. There's another time when I had that same amount of fear, exhilaration, and excitement, and that was when I was thinking about asking my wife to marry me. It was at that particular moment that I'm sitting there and I'm going, okay, um, 
should I do this? Should I not do this? I mean, what does it mean to be married? Am I ready to be married? How do I even know if I'm ready to be, be married? And, and if I'm ready to be married, I mean, do, do, I, do I love her? Does she love me? Like, what is love? Does, does, what is love? I mean, do I really know what love is anyway? I mean, can I really even be ready to, to make this decision? And there in that moment, there is this mixture of this whirlwind of emotions of fear and exhilaration and excitement and being a little bit disturbed about the unknown. And so, similarly, what happens again when you approach the actual wedding day is that coming up to that wedding day, you know, Holly and I looked at each other and said, are we really doing this? Yeah, 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 we're doing this. We're doing this. And you come into your wedding day with this mixture of all kinds of these emotions with excitement, with exhilaration, with fear, and fear about the unknown. And it happens in other major decisions in our lives or major transitions. You're moving to a new area. You have to take a new job. You have, to make some, you have to make some choices where your life is going to be fundamentally altered from that point forward. And all of these mixtures of emotions come together. The people of God at this point in time are on the precipice of one of these major decisions. Is that they are literally standing on Jordan's stormy banks. And they have been waiting 40 years for this day. And it has finally come. Kind of like the dog that was chasing the car, only to grab hold of the car and not knowing what to do when the dog actually catches the car, right? Is that they have been waiting for this day for 40 years, and it has finally come. And there is a mixture of fear and excitement, of exhilaration. But they know that some things lie ahead that will be hard. And they don't know everything that they will face. They know that there will be battles and that there will be wars. And there where they are with this mixture of emotions. I believe that God has given us this passage in part so that it would teach us how we are to step into major decisions. And more than that, how we are to be bold and courageous to step into the promises of God. That for each of us, when we are on a precipice of a major decision, when we are on the, the banks of a, of a river that we are about to cross, this passage teaches us that we are called to remember God's deliverance, to fix our eyes on the Lord, and to the step forward in faith and put one foot in front of the other. Here's how it develops. This passage gives us three really strong visual images here. first one that we're called to is to remember the God of promise, verse Four says this. I'm sorry, verse 5 of chapter 4 says this. Moses commands the people, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulders according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. And so they step into the river, they gather these stones, and they are commanded that at camp that night at Gilgal, they are to set up a giant pillar, something that probably looks like this, set up a giant pillar as a testimony that they would remember God's faithfulness and his deliverance and the day that he took them across the Jordan River and that they would remember that God has not abandoned them or forsaken them, but that God has led them. This command to remember is one of the most frequently given commands in the Bible. In fact, the greatest enemy of faith might simply be forgetfulness. That's Kent Hughes says. Just like kind of in marriage, kind of the greatest enemy of marriage is the failure to remember the preciousness of the other person in your marriage. And so Scripture gives a command repeatedly to remember what God has done. 
And in particular here, he tells them to remember how he brought them across the Jordan, brought them across the Jordan River. And they are to remember this because this monument, this memorial, has three different purposes. First off, it was to be a sign among the people of God themselves. That night when they camped at Gilgal and they brought the 12 stones, that they would celebrate that God has indeed done something great. That when they looked at it in the future, it would give them confidence and help them remember that God is trustworthy and faithful. As they returned to Gilgal, because Gilgal served as their base camp for their excursions around Israel, that they would return on a regular basis and be reminded of the power and faithfulness of God to lead them into his promises. So it was a testimony to the people of God. It was also a testimony, a sign to the nations. He says, today I will be... Sorry, wrong verse. He says to them, so that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. That it was to be a sign to other people. Certainly for the Canaanites, it was a warning. But at the same time, more than that, it was to testify that this God is really different, that he is a living God, that he has real power, that he is involved in the world and lives of his people. So it was to be a sign to the people of God, a sign to the nations, but above all, it was to be a sign to future generations. He says, when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? They are to say, you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. The idea is that there is this pile of stones, and as a God-fearing Jew is walking by with his, you know, his son, and he says, Dad, what do these stones mean? And then he would say, Son, these stones are from the center of the Jordan River. It was the time when God stopped the river so that his people could enter into the promised land. I was there, or my grandfather was there. And I want you to know of God's faithfulness. And I want you to know of God's faithfulness, the verse tells us, that you yourself, that you would fear the Lord, that you would honor the Lord, that you would revere the Lord, that you would worship and serve the Lord. He gives them a memorial that they would remember. Let's understand that this is the normal way that God acts. This is the the normal way that God acts in the midst of his people from generation to generation, is that what God gives is a pile of stones that we would remember. You see, the normal way that God works, and he expects work to be done among his people, is that the people of God themselves would testify to his deeds, that the people of God would recount what God has done. And he insists that they would make this memorial so that future generations would remember. The standard way that God works in this world is not through dazzling displays of power or direct revelation. But it is through the faithful witness and teaching of God's people telling one another and telling the the nations and telling of how God has already worked deliverance. It is unique and rare for him to act visibly with raw power. Is that the way that God's guidance and inspiration comes 
And in the way that he works is he expects it to work in people's lives through stories being told, through testimonies about God's deliverance. What this means is this, is that if you're a child and you're being raised in a Christian home, what you should expect as the normal trajectory of your faith is that there's not going to be a dramatic story. There's not going to be some crazy story of deliverance in your life. Because the normal way of faith is that God wants people to live following him and to pass that on to their children. And part of the reason why there's not going to be some crazy story of deliverance in your life, because if there was a crazy story of deliverance in your life, it means that you were living in a crazy way opposed to God. And God wants us to be raising our next generation in faithfulness. And so it happens sometimes, and I think this is partly because in our culture, we have such a, uh, a fascination and obsession with what is our identity and what makes me distinct and what's your story, what's your own story, and how does your own story make you unique, how does your own story make you distinct, combined with our total fascination with, you know, celebrity stuff and, and, bi- and, and, and big drama. And so what oftentimes happens is that as kids grow up, children grow up, and they become teenagers and they go to college, and they, begin, and, they, and they own their faith for themselves. And you say, how has God worked in your life? They'll say, well, I mean, I don't know. I don't, it's not a very good story. You know, it's, uh, it's not a very good story. It's not very dramatic. I mean, I, I was raised in a home, and my parents believed, and they taught me the truth of Scripture. And I came to believe it for myself, and I own it, and I've, I've, I've kind of lived it. It's not, it's not a very remarkable story. But it is a remarkable story. Right? That's what should be normal. And that's how it typically occurs. And what that means in particular is that if you are a child who was raised in a Christian home, your parents' story is your story. Or your great-grandparents' story is your story. That God's faithfulness and deliverance of them is God's faithfulness and deliverance of you. And if you were one who wasn't raised in a Christian home, and you became a Christian independent of your, independent of your family then what happens then is that the stories of how God has worked in the past, how signs like this have been assigned to the nations so that people who are not a part of the covenant family would come to know God, that has become your story. And it is the obligation of the older generations to testify of the work of the Lord in your own life, in your parents' life, in your grandparents' life, in the peoples of God's life who's gone before, to testify it, to tell of those stories, and more than that, to talk and to repeat and to remember how God has worked in the people of God, working deliverance for his people, ultimately through the deliverance that he has accomplished through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection of the cross. An act of deliverance that still delivers today. So what do you do when you are on the precipice of a major life change? You begin by remembering God's deliverance of his people in his past. It begins by remembering God's faithfulness from generation to generation to generation. And as you stand on the banks of a major decision and you're like, I don't know what lies ahead. I've got these fears. Is God going to be faithful? Where, you know, how do I know that the Lord's going to, go, going to work with me? Paul testifies in Romans to that very fear. He says this, He who did not spare his own son, But gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously graciously give us all things? God will supply all that your needs. He's calling you to remember that he gave his own son. 
And because he gave his own son, he will also give you what you need in this present moment and into the future. So the first thing to do is to remember God's promises and to remember God's deliverance in the past. The second thing after that is then is to fix your eyes on the Lord. To fix your eyes on the Lord into the future. And the image that we have for that in this passage is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. All right, this phrase is said here some 17 times in these two chapters. All right, God wants us, he is emphasizing the role of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. And he wants us to fix our eyes on it and to understand it. Well, what is the Ark? Well, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark with Indiana Jones from bygone years, they actually do a decent job with their depiction of it, is that the Ark of the Covenant itself was not very big. It was a little under four feet long by two and a quarter feet high by two and a quarter feet wide. It was covered with gold on the inside and outside. And the lid was made of one piece of pure gold that was pounded into a lid. And also from that same one piece, there were two cherubim or angels who were facing each other with their wings outstretched and up and their wings nearly touching each other. And the space between the two angels was referred to as the mercy seat. And it symbolized the place where God dwelt. This Ark of the Covenant was carried on poles by the priests, by a particular group of priests. And when the Ark of the Covenant went out, here's what happened. When the Ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it returned, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. The point is this, is that the people of God were to follow the Ark of the Covenant of the God of all the earth. Now, this actual artifact, we don't know what happened to it in particular. It was probably either destroyed or conquered in one of the exiles or by the Romans when they came through in 78 AD. And it's possible that someone like Indiana Jones in real life might actually discover it. But if it's discovered, we need to know what it represented because it's not going to be like Indiana Jones and what occurs with it. It's because what it represented, it was this, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. It's this phrase that's repeated multiple times. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth, what it represented is it represented God's presence. And it represented God's presence in a unique way. Because you see, unlike tribal deities and unlike animistic deities around the globe, is that God is not represented, he he doesn't present himself as as an icon or a doll or a statue of any sort whatsoever. When we lived in the Philippines, um, this was the common mode of transportation, jeepneys, and the religion was very um, superstitious, and there was a lot of combining of Christianity with animistic tribal religions. And so on the front of every one of these jeepneys is that someone glued Jesus and the Mother Mary to the front bumper, and they glued a statue of Jesus and Mother Mary to the back bumper, because the idea was is that you needed Jesus and the Mother Mary in those statues on both ends to go before you and go behind you so that nothing occurred, so that you didn't, nothing bad happened to you. However, God insists that he is not going to be represented 
by some sort of doll or icon or statue. Instead, he is represented by the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. All right? Now, what this has is that inside of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth, inside the Ark was the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. And the covenant, in particular, was God's covenant that he made with the people of God through Moses, and it was placed inside of the Ark. And... Not only that, but the book of the law that Joshua was commanded of, as we saw two weeks ago, the book of the law that was not to depart from Joshua, but he was to be careful to do all that is according in it and all that is written in it. The book of the law that Joshua was reading was kept alongside of the ark and kept next to it. Is that the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth, it contained and represented the covenant and the oath of God to his people. Here is what's significant is that what represents God's presence is God's promises. What represents his presence is his promise. Is that this was the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. That sounds kind of mystical to us. We don't really use the term arks. The word ark in Hebrew is a really normal term. It means a box. Okay, It sometimes means a chest, sometimes it means a coffin, sometimes it's translated in the Old Testament as a sarcophagus or a tomb, you know, that someone gets, that someone gets buried in. And so, to put it simply, what is this that God chooses to, to represent himself and to represent his presence? It is this, is that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is the box of the promises of the universal God. It is the box of the promises of the universal God. Not a throne, not a statue, not a temple. And the people of God were to fix their eyes on the promises of God, and they were to follow the promises of God, which represented the presence of God, wherever the promise and the presence of God went before them. Well, how were they to do this in fixing their eyes? Well, they were to prepare for it and to follow it. Is that they were to prepare to follow the box of the promise of the universal God. Here's what it says in verse 5. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. To consecrate yourself means that you set yourself apart for a specific purpose. And for the people of God then, that included certain washings, kind of like if you're going out on a date, you, you take a shower even if you took a shower that morning. Why? Because you're setting yourself apart for, for that date. And so they washed themselves as a symbol and representative of being cleansed from sin. Oftentimes they would set them apart from confession, through confession, also through um, abstaining from sexual relations and marriage, kind of like 1 Corinthians 7 says, where it commands a couple not to deprive one another. But if you do, only do so for a limited period of time that you may devote yourself to prayer. That was the idea, is that the people of God, in order to follow God, were called to prepare themselves, and to prepare themselves to seek the Lord and to follow the Lord. I think the principle applies to us as well, is that we must be prepared to follow the Lord. We must prepare ourselves to follow the Lord. That when we pray, we should prepare to pray. That you don't just start spouting things off, but you pause and you say, 
I, who am I praying to? Our Father who art in heaven. I am praying to the sovereign almighty God who is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he is also my heavenly Father who always does right, always acts rightly, and always acts for my goodwill. This is who I am coming to talk to in prayer. We prepare for it. When we study the Word of God, we should prepare to open God's Word. It's not just to throw it open and say, oh, what does this have to mean to me? But to say, I'm about to hear the Word of the Lord that God has given to me, that I would listen to it, and that I would obey it, and that I would respond in faith. We are to prepare when we gather together for worship. You do that by not staying up too late on Saturday nights so that you're awake on Sunday mornings. You prepare by taking some time before worship to pray and to reflect upon the Lord and to prepare your heart. The idea is that as we as the people of God, both through regular patterns and in our constant state, would be prepared and that we would live our lives prepared to encounter the Lord, to seek Him, to follow Him, and to follow Him where He leads, and to be ready for Him when He returns. After preparing, we are then to fix our eyes on the Lord and His promises, and to follow Him. It tells us here in verse 4 that the people of God are commanded, there shall be a distance between you and it, the Ark of the Covenant of the Universal God, the box of the promises of the God of all the earth. About 2,000 cubits in length, that's about a half mile. They're commanded, do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Now, typically, the people of God are commanded to stay away from the Ark of the Covenant because of God's holiness. And to keep a distance of it because it is so holy. But here it says, don't come near it because you don't know what you're doing. You don't know where you're going and you don't know where you think you should go. And so he says, don't come near it. It needs to be a half mile ahead of you so that you may know which way to go. When you're on the banks, and how does that work? Well, if, have you ever been in a mob or if you've ever been in a mob, one of the challenges of a mob is that a mob doesn't know where it's going, and it can go in any given direction. However, by having the Ark of the Covenant, the box of the promises of God, a half mile ahead, even if you're a million strong as a nation, and you flank out wide, everybody can still see the promises of God. They can see the promises of God, and they can follow the promises of God, because everybody sees and follows it ahead of them. What does it mean is that when we are on the banks of a major life shift and major decision and you don't know where you are going, we begin by remembering God's deliverance in the past. You don't know where you're going, but you do know the one that you are to follow and to fix your gaze and to fix your eyes on the Lord. Remember the God's promises and to fix your eyes on the Lord as he leads you into the future. And his leading is never contrary to his word and never contrary to his promises. You don't know what lies ahead. He does, and his word and his promises will always guide you. Now, it's at this point that some of you have already tuned me out. Because you listen to this and you're saying, okay, sermon, I'm in church, follow God's word. That's a surprise. Not. 
not a surprise to fix our eyes on God's Word and to follow God's Word. And so you're like, okay, yeah, I get this, follow God's Word, and you've tuned me out. And I would urge you not to. Because do you know when the people of God ignore the Word of God? It's when they want to go in a different direction. It's when they want to walk in a different way. It's when they say, you know what, I, I, you know, I want to do my own thing here. You know, sexual integrity, nah. Generosity, nah. Gossip, well, they need to know. I'm being, I'm being a good friend. Truthfulness, well, maybe. Worship, I'm too busy on Sunday. I stayed up too night. I'm too, I'm too, I'm too tired. And again and again, Scripture calls us that we would repeatedly remember again and again and that you would hear it repetitively and often when you come to church to fix your eyes on the Lord and to fix your eyes on His promises. For the author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, what were those cloud of witnesses? Well, it's Hebrews 11, which he was reciting all the ways that God had worked to deliver his people and to be faithful to his people, to remember God's promises in the past. And he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. As what he's identifying is that the struggle of the Christian life is that our eyes, is that our gaze would be fixated and would shift onto all of these other things. And it would shift onto all of these other things that will distract us and lead us astray and lead us in other directions. And so the writer of Hebrews says, no, what we need to do is cast off every sin that would entangle and run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, fixing our eye on the founder, on the author and perfecter of our faith. Just as Jesus, who the, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God Almighty. What's his point? Is that when you are in the midst of a life change, what do you do? Well, you remember God's faithfulness to his promises, and you fix your eyes on his promises, and you fix your eyes on the Lord that has gone before you and who will go before you and who will walk with you into the future. Finally, what do you do? Is then you step forward in faith and put one foot ahead of the other. Faith, as we've looked at last week, is the act of commitment on the part of a believer. It's not just having knowledge, but it is acting on that knowledge. There is a need for saving faith, which is the entry point where a person realizes their need for a Savior, and they trust in Him, in Jesus, as both their Savior, the one who has died on the cross and risen from the grave, to forgive them, but they trust in Him also as their Lord, their boss, their master, the one to whom they follow. And so there is a saving faith, but then what's needed after that is an obedient faith, a faith that says, Lord, you're the Lord of my life. Where you go, I will go. Where you lead, I will follow. We get a beautiful picture of this with the Jordan River itself. What happens is that the priests set out with the box of the promises of God, and they set out with this beautiful box, and they set out toward the Jordan River. Here's a map of the Jordan River Valley. On the bottom here, Shittim, where they were camped, is about 10 miles to the east. Jericho is 10 miles to the west. The distance of the Jordan River from the, sea, the Dead Sea on the south to the Sea of Galilee in the north is about 156 miles, give or take. But where they are crossing is that they are crossing the Jordan River, 
in this valley, which was in the floodplain. You can see this from this grainy satellite picture of what the floodplain of the Jordan River looks like. And the floodplain here was roughly 200 yards to a mile wide. And as the floodplain, it was packed with tangled brush and growth. And the river channel itself, the actual river, you know, that when it's not flooded is typically about 100 feet wide. And when it's not flooded, it has a depth of 3 to 12 feet. In addition, the Jordan River is known as a river that has a much stronger current than other rivers its size because of the steep gradient of the river. And the text makes clear that this is occurring during the flood season. What this all means is that the people of God are not crossing some placid stream, but it is a torrent that is before them. And underneath the water and the foaming water is a mass of brush and jungle growth. And God has decided that it is at this time of year that they're going to cross the river. I mean, they have waited 40 years to get to this point. Why could he have not waited three more months? It's because God delights to show his might when we are utterly helpless so that we can see that we have nothing to contribute to our deliverance. So that we can see that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So oftentimes when we're faced with situations in life, our most common prayer is, Lord, would you just make it go well? Would you make our trip go well? Would you make life go well? Would you just make everything go well? And God says, no, what I most want you to know is I want you to know me. That I will be with you. And yes, I will put you in situations that you cannot bear so that you will know me and so that you will turn to me. And so there's this river, and God says that the river is going to be stopped. How's the river stopped? We don't know exactly how it was stopped, but we do know where it was stopped. Stopped 15 miles north of where they were crossing at the town or the city of Adam. And at this place where it crossed, you can see the little dot way up the river there, about 15 miles north. Um, At this place, we don't know how God stopped it, but we do know that in the year 1267, the river was stopped again because there was an earthquake that caused the side of the walls to collapse and it dammed the river for 10 hours. And it did again in 1906 and then also in 1927, there was an earthquake and a collapse of the mountains over the Jordan River and it dammed the river for 21 hours. Now, whether God used secondary causes such as an earthquake or direct intervention to cause this to occur, who knows? And quite frankly, Who cares? And what difference does it make? Because the precise timing of the stoppage in return indicates that the reason why this happened was because of the hand of God. So let's look at when exactly did God stop the water. Verse 13 tells us, And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand up in one heat. When did God stop the water? It wasn't until they got their feet wet. It wasn't until they got their feet wet. Now, here is the irony. This is the story where that phrase comes from in the English language. But the way that we use that phrase, to get your feet wet, means to not commit. It means to dip your toe in. It means to test out the water temperature to see if you want to be all in. 
And quite frankly, that's the way that many people treat God. So they say, well, I'm going to dip my toe in. I'm going, to, I'm going to dip my toe in and see how it feels. And sometimes people say, well, you know, I tried Christianity, and Christianity doesn't work for me. Well, God doesn't want your toe. He wants all of you. And he wants all of you in and all of you committed. And when exactly it was that, they, that the waters stopped, it didn't stop until they got their feet wet. It didn't stop until they stepped into the torrent of the river is that faith is belief plus action. And the calling of the people of God was to remember God's promises, to keep their eyes fixed on him ahead, and to step forward, being strong and courageous to enter into God's promises. See, God doesn't act here until his people have committed. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say to the people of God, I know you've got all these emotions, you've got fear and excitement and exhilaration, and you're wondering whether or not I'm going to be faithful. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to stop the river, and you can see, you can see how it stopped. And once you see how it stopped, then what you can do is you can take soil samples, you can go out there and test it, and you can know that it really is dry. And then once you've figured all this stuff out, then, you know, then you can know that you trust me. And you're actually not trusting him. Because you're just trusting in yourself. And, you're, and God's not going to allow you to trust in yourself, to trust in your own assessment, to trust in what you see, to trust in the way that you think the world works. Instead, what God says is, trust me. Trust me, and I will be with you. Step forward in faith, remembering what I have done, looking forward to the promises of God. Step forward on faith, in faith, and I will make your way clear. You may not know the future, but you do know the one who goes before you. And if God can tame a raging river, he can certainly bring you into his promises and secure his promises for you. So let's wrap these things together. Here's what this passage shows us. Is you do not know the future, but remember the work of the Lord and whose deliverance in the past through the resurrection of Jesus Christ still delivers today. You do not know what lies ahead, but fix your eyes on the Lord and on his promises and follow him into the future. You do not know what tomorrow brings, but step forward in faith, trusting in the God who always fulfills his promises. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we worship you that you are faithful and true, that you are the God who delivers your people. And Lord, I thank you that you deliver us in really ordinary ways. And that the ordinary way that you deliver us most frequently is through the pe- your people telling of your stories, telling of your works, telling of your deliverance. It's through your people telling of your faithfulness in our own lives and how you have worked in our own lives and how you continue to work in our own lives and how you continue to change us so that that would be a sign among us and the nations and future generations. So, Lord, may we remember... May we remember what you have done. And may we step forward in faith with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who is both our Savior and our Lord. It is in his name we pray. Amen.